welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, let's summarize some of the big news of the past week. Our lead story, once again, concerns the coronavirus, specifically the Omicron virus. And what does it mean? The good news is, well, as predicted, the number of infections, the number of deaths seems to be going down in many places around the planet Earth. There was a peak, a peak first observed in South Africa, and now that peak is hitting Europe and the United States, and numbers are going down in some places. So what does that mean? Some people say, aha, it's time to throw away the masks, it's back to normal, good times are coming, it's time to celebrate. Well, not so fast. First of all, if you are fully vaccinated, then the chances of getting the Omicron virus are not zero, but close to zero. However, what about the unvaccinated? The unvaccinated are helpless against both the Delta and the Omicron varieties. And those are the varieties that lead to deaths in the hospital. Most of the people getting the virus, the deaths, the hospitalizations, are among the ranks of those who did not get vaccinated and do not have the boosters. So anyway, we'll say a few things about this because, well, there is a theory out there that says that we could be headed for an endemic rather than a pandemic. So what does it mean if we one day live with the coronavirus like we live with the flu? And take a look outside. Global warming? Some people say, ha, take a look at all the snow out there. Take a look at the fact that tens of millions of Americans are being snowed in, trapped in their cars, all sorts of nightmarish scenarios being played out. So where's global warming? Well, it turns out that global warming may actually have a role to play in this when you study something called the polar vortex. So we'll say a few things about the physics of global warming and what's happening with this winter. And talking about global warming, Greenland is melting. In fact, by satellites and by geometrics, it's possible to estimate how much of Greenland has melted in the last 20 years. And believe it or not, so much of the ice of Greenland has melted that it's enough to cover the U.S. of A. with 1.5 feet of water, to inundate the entire continental United States with water that once upon a time was snow and ice in Greenland. And then we'll say a few things about, well, a fad. Not all fads are wrong. Not all fads are bad. But this fad talks about longevity. That's right, the fountain of youth. This time the people pushing the fountain of youth are not hucksters. They're not circus barkers. They're not frauds. They are Nobel Prize winning scientists. Billionaires. That's right. Some billionaires feel the pinch of aging. They see the wrinkles in the mirror every morning, and they realize that, well, hey, you got to go when you got to go, but why not reset the clock? Well, if you're a billionaire, that's an option for you. 
And you can hire the finest minds of the planet Earth to, to carry out some of your wishes. And that's what's happening in Silicon Valley right now. Millions of dollars are being pumped to bring a critical mass of scientists to, to Silicon Valley to investigate, well, the fountain of youth. It's called reprogramming. Reprogramming your DNA and your cells so that you become young again. Well, we'll say a few things about the pros and cons of the latest fad, which may not be entirely incorrect. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. As predicted, the incidence of the Omicron virus is peaking right now around the country. We first saw the peak in South Africa, where the Omicron virus first surfaced, and we realized that it is so infectious. It is so infectious that in the very first few weeks of the introduction of the virus, it infects most of the people out there who can be affected. And that means a spike. But the spike goes down eventually because eventually you run out of victims. You've pretty much hit all the people who are unvaccinated, all the people who are vulnerable, and therefore it starts to fall again. That may be happening around the world. We see the same trend in country after country. First, the spike emerges very rapidly, catching medical officials totally off guard, catching people without any safeguards against this very infectious virus. And then we see the death tolls rising a bit, not as dramatically as with the Delta. Because of the fact that even though Omicron is more infectious, it does not seem to be as deadly. And as a consequence, some people, I think, are going the other way. Pendulum is swinging the other way for them and saying, look, we survived. Now's the time to throw away your mask. Good times are here again. It's back to normal. Well, not so fast. First of all, let's look at the 1918 flu virus, which killed more people than all of World War I. It was one of the greatest pandemics and one of the greatest killers in the history of the human race. Where did it go? Some people thought that, well, it just disappeared. That's what happens to viruses. They just go away. Well, they just don't go away. Let's take a look at Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin's theory of evolution says that even viruses have to compete against other versions, mutated versions of the virus, which means that there's a race, a race among these viruses to infect the most people. That's just Darwinian evolution. But if you kill too many of them, then there's nobody left to infect. And then you die out as well. Well, that goes against Darwinian evolution as well. So Darwinian evolution says, A, it means that you select out for the most infectious virus possible to beat out all the rivals. But B, you don't want to kill all the victims because then there's nobody left to propagate your genes. That could be happening, some people say, as we make sure, as we see the pandemic become an endemic like maybe the flu. In other words, the 1918 flu virus is probably with us even today in mutated form, in a form that's still infectious, but is not the killer variety that we saw back in 1918. Now, is it time to celebrate? 
First of all, if you are among the unvaccinated, if you are among the unboosted, this is precisely the wrong time to celebrate. You're a sitting duck. You're sitting duck out there because don't believe all the stories about the people recovering and saying that it's a mild cold because those people are probably vaccinated already. So in other words, it's the unvaccinated who are the ones dying in the main in hospitals, the ones that are being hospitalized, and the ones coming down with a flu virus symptoms and a cold symptoms, they are the ones who already have been vaccinated and have been boosted. So in other words, a word to the rise, wise, and that is the epidemic is still with us, though it does appear as if we see signs of an endemic appearing. And that's the good news. So what's the lesson? Once again, the lesson is, for God's sake, get vaccinated, get boosted. It's not going to be 100%, but even if you do come down with the Omicron virus, it'll be like a common cold or the flu. And speaking about the flu, do you know that some people have volunteered, actually volunteered to be infected with the virus? Yes, in the name of science, there are people, mainly younger individuals, who have volunteered to be infected. They had the virus inserted into their nose and elsewhere, and scientists then began to analyze them very carefully. And they found out that under controlled conditions where you can actually analyze these things, some of the conclusions that we drew before were wrong. If you read most histories of the viruses, it says that the coronavirus peaks around five days after the first infection. So things really don't get off the ground till pretty late. However, the actual result by analyzing people that were deliberately infected shows that the coronavirus is peaks much earlier than expected. First symptoms start two days, two days before after infection, not five days, two days, very, very rapid. Then it rises and then of course it falls again. So in other words, a lot of the medical advice given up by the medical industry is wrong. That it's much more infectious than we originally thought. That in two days, who would have thought that in two days you could be spreading the virus and coming down with symptoms? Well, people are still studying these results. Uh, of the ones who were studied, uh, none of them were hospitalized. So it does mean that only a small percent of those people that are infected go to the hospital, but that was expected. So the report basically concentrated on those people that were uh, symptomless or had very few symptoms that were not hospitalized. Also, let's say a few things about global warming. Some people are saying, ha, I told you so. Look outside. Look outside. There's snow everywhere as far as the eye can see. Millions, tens of millions of Americans are bogged down in the snow. Take a look around you. Cars are stalling on major highways. People are shivering in their cars. Where is global warming? Well, if you want to see the effects of global warming, watch the evening news very carefully. And ask yourself the question, why? Why are we having these monster snowstorms? And you take a look and you see that there's something pushing. 
something pushing these low-pressure areas throughout the United States, and that is the jet stream. And then look carefully at the jet stream. You realize the jet stream is, jet stream is quite irregular. It's not obeying the usual path, going down from Canada, going into the Dakota, let, let's say, then going back out again. No, it's going all the way down past Texas and then all the way up again. So why is that? Why is a jet stream acting so irregularly? And that's because of the polar vortex. You see, under normal circumstances, winds whip around the North Polar regions very tightly, and that means that the jet stream is more or less stable. It does wobble, but not wobbling the way it's wobbling now. We're talking about the jet stream pushing large masses of ice-cold air right past the boundaries of the United States, past Canada, into the United States, into Mexico. And that's rare because of the instability of the polar vortex, which in turn is pushing the jet stream much further south. Well, then the next question is, why is that? Well, there's a theory. It's a theory not advocated by all meteorologists, but it's a theory that says that as the Earth warms up, the polar vortex becomes more and more unstable. And because the polar vortex becomes more and more stable, it begins to wobble. And when you look at satellite photographs, satellite photographs of the wandering of the polar vortex is quite dramatic. You see that it wobbles all over the place. It's not so stable. It turns out that in a situation with no global warming, the temperature differential is such that the polar vortex is more or less stable. Not totally stable, does wander a bit, but more or less stable. However, as the Earth begins to heat up, it becomes unnaturally unstable, begins to wander a bit more, and push ice-cold air into the United States. So what I'm trying to say is that if there's snow outside, if people are being trapped in their cars on the interstate, well, some of that may be due to global warming. And as I mentioned, Greenland is melting, the North Pole is melting. There's enough ice that has melted in Greenland to cover the U.S. of A. with one and a half feet of water. Yes, by looking at photographs, looking at topological maps, satellite photographs of Greenland, we realize that Greenland is, well, it's melting. And all that water has to go someplace. It goes to raise the level of the, of the oceans. And over the last 20 years, enough ice, and, uh, enough ice has melted in Greenland that if it were to cover the United States with water, it would make water one and a half feet thick. And the North Polar region, as you probably heard, is ice-free during large parts of the year. You know, the Nautilus submarine visited the North Pole dramatically in the 1950s and measured, measured the thickness of the ice, which we couldn't do before. And we found that every year it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. After 50 years, the North Polar region has lost 50% of its ice cover. That means 1% per year. That means in the coming decades, uh, the North Polar region could be free of ice. 
And so the children will know that Santa Claus is a myth because Santa Claus cannot possibly live on the North Pole because there's no ice on the North Pole. And so it's something to think about. Now, of course, the Russians have a different attitude toward this because it means that they can have a Northwest Passage. It means that Siberia will become more tropical than it is now with all the frozen tundra. I had a chance to speak in Siberia once, in Krasnorosk, and when I went there, they told me that monsters from the Ice Age are coming out of the ice because, well, the tundra is melting. With the melting of tundra, two things happen. One is that methane gas is released in the atmosphere. Methane is much more of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is, about 20 times worse, and it causes a runaway effect. The warmer it gets, the more methane is released, and the warmer it gets again. That's one thing they told me. A second thing they told me is that, well, as the tundra melts, Ice Age animals that died tens of thousands of years ago are coming out of the ice. Think about that. Mammoths, gigantic mammoths, are coming out of the ice because of the melting of Siberia, which in turn releases more methane gas, which accelerates global warming. Also, if you're reading the science magazines, you probably know that billionaires like Jeff Bezos have a new target, not just to go into outer space, but to live forever. I mean, if you're a billionaire, you can pretty much buy anything you want except youth. I mean, think about that. How can you buy youth? Every time you wake up in the morning, you see a few more wrinkles, a few more white hairs, and you realize that for all the billions and billions of dollars you have, you cannot turn back the clock. Death and taxes, they say, are the only two constants of life. Well, some billionaires aren't taking that lying down. Jeff Bezos and others, apparently in Silicon Valley, are backing a new organization called Altos. The Altos Corporation has hired some of the finest minds. We're talking about Nobel Prize winners coming on board and new faculty members being raided from America's greatest colleges and universities to come to Silicon Valley to have a freewheeling discussion and research, unlimited research budget on the aging process. And what's driving it is something called reprogramming. You know, the Nobel Prize years ago was given to a Japanese scientist who took adult cells and made them into juvenile stem cells basically reprogram them to be young again. You realize that the genetics of an old cell has all the genes of the genetics of a young cell. That is, in principle, all the information necessary to be young again is found in an older cell. And so this means that if you tweak a cell that's older, you might be able to rearrange its DNA so that it becomes younger. Now, does this work? In limited cases, the answer is yes. In limited cases, reproducible, testable results show that in certain circumstances, you can, in fact, take older cells and reprogram them to become young. So, what's the catch? You know, there's always a catch there someplace. Things are not as rosy as the press releases say they are. You have to read the fine print. The fine print says, well, 
Yeah, you can reprogram cells in certain circumstances, but sometimes the cells go haywire. In other words, they go cancerous. And so you have to be very careful about this. This is also found in other kinds of therapies. For example, if you take a look at telomerase, telomerase raises an enzyme which prevents the chromosomes of the cell from getting shorter and shorter and shorter until eventually the chromosome falls apart and you die. In fact, that's one reason why you die. Well, some people say, why not stop the telomerase? I mean, why not stop the telomeres so they don't get shorter and shorter and shorter? In other words, it's a biological clock. Why not stop the clock? Sounds like a great idea. Well, the Nobel Prize was given to another person who actually isolated telomerase, the engine, the, the enzyme, which actually does stop the clock. Another Nobel Prize. But, well, let's face it. We have to look at what the catch is. There's a catch there. And the catch there is that, yes, you can stop the telomeres from getting shorter and shorter. You can, in some sense, stop the clock. But what else stops the clock besides telomerase? Cancer. In other words, one of the reasons why cancer kills you is because they live forever. So that's the irony. Even though humans want to live forever, the things that actually do live forever will kill you, like cancer cells. So with telomerase, you can stop the clock. The telomeres don't get shorter and shorter. They simply stop with telomerase. But that's also hijacked by cancer. Cancer also uses that identical mechanism, stopping the clock, so that cells don't die. Now, on exploration, I interviewed one of these scientists who works at Menlo Park. And at that institute, they take your skin cells, put it in a Petri dish, and watch them die. After about 60 or so reproductions, they begin to lose their youth, the cells become senescent, sluggish, and they die. After about 60 reproductions, that's the length of your skin cells in terms of longevity. But if you apply telomerase to them, what happens to these skin cells? They become immortal. That's right. You have immortalized a skin cell. That's a new word in the English language. That word didn't exist before this. Immortalization. That's right. You can actually immortalize a skin cell, and that's been done in the laboratory. This is not science fiction. This is science reality. But again, as I mentioned, you got to do it very carefully because that's precisely what cancer cells use as well. And speaking about cancers, let me just repeat something that I mentioned before, and that is there are two new things on the front against cancer that are very interesting. One is liquid biopsies. Why not have a simple blood test to detect whether or not you have cancer going in your body? That was a dream, and it's being made legal this year by the FDA. It's called liquid biopsy. They take a sample of your blood, and they analyze it for proteins and enzymes and for cancer cells. And they can identify 50 types of cancer cells circulating in your bloodstream. At the very minimum, it'll tell you whether or not you are in remission or not, 
or in a, in a best case scenario, it'll tell you years before that you have cancer and therefore you can do something about it. Well, they could identify 50 cancers now. Think of the future, where they might be able to identify hundreds of different kinds of cancer. Next, what do you do if they do find cancer? Then there's something called immunotherapy, which is of course uh, legal with the government. Immunotherapy takes blood from your body, extracts out the white corpuscles in that blood, and then they weaponize them by changing the genetic structure so that it can identify cancer, and then it reinserts these cells back in the body. In other words, your body cannot recognize cancer cells. Your immune system can't see them. They're under the radar. That's why you die. That's what kills you. The cancer cells just keep growing, and your body's immune system cannot see the cancer cells. Well, we can now weaponize your own white corpuscles so they can, in fact, identify the genetics of the cancer that's growing in your body, and then put these weaponized white corpuscles back into your body again. So in other words, we're using human technology to make natural defense mechanisms stronger and more effective. Because, well, let's face it, cancer flies under the radar. Your immune system cannot see cancer cells. That's why they kill you. But with immunotherapy, it's possible to strengthen your immune system so that it can specifically target the antigens of cancer. And again, this is not hocus-pocus. It's in the laboratory. Well, what's the catch? There's always catches around these things. One, um, one possibility is that immunotherapy works best for liquid uh, cancers, that is, not solid tumors. Cancers of the blood, for example. They're still working on whether or not they can generalize immunotherapy so that it would tackle uh, solid tumors as well as cancer floating in your bloodstream. That's a problem. And of course, there are other problems that are involved, side effects and things like that. But again, if you want to know more about this, Google it. That is, if you have cancer or know somebody with cancer, there's more than just surgery and radiation and chemotherapy now. There are specialized drugs that target cancer cells. And there's also immunotherapy, which actually has reversed cancers in people that were considered hopelessly infected by cancer. That's right. Sometimes immunotherapy is given to those individuals that are, quote, helpless, hopeless, they are going to die. And sure enough, some of them die, but some of them also survive because of this new therapy called immunotherapy. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics. And if you want to know more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I'm also on Facebook, and on Facebook I have 5 million fans on Facebook. And I've written 5 New York Times bestsellers. 
My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it talks about, well, what I do for a living. I work on string theory, which we think but cannot yet prove that it is the fable theory of everything, which is the theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life. A theory of all creation that unifies all the forces of nature into a single equation, perhaps no more than an inch long. Stay tuned when we bring on Jay Olshansky talking about the science of immortality and the aging process on exploration. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first part of Exploration, we summarize some of the top stories in science, and in the second part of Exploration, we'll talk about the aging process. Our special guest today is Dr. Jay Olshansky, one of the world's leading authorities on the aging process, author of the book, The Quest for Immortality. And we're going to try to separate the hype from the reality of what's happening inside the universities and learning centers of the world. Now, of course, the search for immortality is not a new one. In fact, one of the oldest texts of all time, predating the Bible, is the Tales of Gilgamesh. In fact, many of the passages from the Tales of Gilgamesh were later incorporated into the Bible. And what was Gilgamesh doing? Well, it turns out that he was searching for the Fountain of Youth. And so the search for Fountain of Youth is an old one, dating all the way back to prehistory. Not to mention the fact that in Asian folklore, Emperor Qin was the first emperor to unify China in around the year 200 B.C. However, even though he could conquer as far as the eye could see, he could not conquer the wrinkles on his face. He was getting old. And so, to conquer the aging process, he assembled all his princes and explorers, and he gave them a mission. Go out and find the fountain of youth, or don't come back. Well, obviously they did not find the fountain of youth, because Emperor Chen did in fact die. However, since they couldn't come back, perhaps the princes and explorers of Emperor Qin went on to found Korea and Japan. Not to mention the fact that Ponce de Leon was searching for the Fountain of Youth and instead he found the great state of Florida. So it's an old dream, but it's a dream that has drawbacks. First of all, we have not found anything resembling the Fountain of Youth, but we also have Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, we have the legend of Eos, the goddess of the dawn. Well, goddesses, of course, are immortal. 
but she had the misfortune of falling in love with a mortal, Tithonus. And so she pleaded with Zeus, the father of all the gods, to give the gift of immortality to her lover. Well, Zeus took pity on the goddess of the dawn, and so he granted her wish. And in fact, Tithonus became immortal. However, Eos made a big mistake, a huge mistake. She forgot to ask for the gift of eternal youth as well. And so her lover simply got older and older and older, but could never die. That was his fate. And so people who search for immortality also have to wonder, will we suffer the fate of Tithonus if we start to live forever? Will we live forever in decaying, dying bodies that cannot die? Well, now we have genetic engineering. And now we have a much deeper understanding of the molecular biology of the aging process. And so with us today is Dr. Jay Olshansky, who will talk to us today about why do we have to get old? Now I'd like to bring on our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor S.J. Olshansky. He's a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he's also a research institute at the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago. Well, if you've been to the drugstore, you've probably been hit with all these advertising saying that you can retard the aging process, even roll back the hands of time, live longer, they say. But what about the truth? The truth about human growth hormone, antioxidants, massive doses of vitamins and minerals and herbs and supplements. What about the hardcore truth and scientific verification of these claims? And also, what about genetics? We seem to be teasing apart many of the genes that influence the aging process. So once again, we're going to bring on our special guest today, Professor Jay Olshansky, and he's the co-author of a book called The Quest for immortality. So that's the subject of today's discussion, immortality. I understand that today you and other prominent scientists have issued a a policy statement, a recommendation of sorts that could have serious uh, and beneficial economic benefits. Uh, Could you elaborate? Yes. uh, This is uh, based on an article we published in The Scientist back in March of uh, this year uh, with Rich Miller from the University of Michigan. Uh, Dan Perry from the Alliance for Aging Research and Bob Butler from the International Longevity Center in New York. And we basically uh, suggested that the time has arrived for uh, societies, uh, not just the United States, but really all nations, to begin investing in an effort to slow the biological process of aging in people. Uh, And the logic and the rationale is fairly straightforward. Uh, Basically, what we're suggesting is is that even a small uh, deceleration or slowdown in the rate of biological aging uh, of just a few years would actually yield huge economic and health benefits. Um, I mean, think of it this way. The way the NIH is currently set up, 
is essentially to deal with one disease at a time independent of all others. But if you can find a way to slow down the biological process of aging, you would essentially postpone everything that is negative associated with growing older into later and later ages. It would be, even, it would be as if you, you achieved a major discovery for every major fatal and non-fatal disease if you could find a way to slow aging. So we're calling on Congress to begin investing in a concerted effort to slow the biological process of aging in, in people. Yes, in fact, the social benefits could be astronomical, especially as you look at the baby boomers that are hitting 60 and will eventually uh, increase medical costs uh, tremendously in this country. Yes, I mean, the prevalence of, uh, of conditions of frailty and disability will rise dramatically in the coming decades with the aging of the baby boom cohort. Uh, so slowing that process even a little bit would actually uh, enable people to be uh, healthier longer, uh, contribute uh, to the economy longer. They would just, uh, just everything positive uh, associated with, um, with, uh, with aging, there are positive things associated with aging, would uh, be extended. Uh, so it would be, it would be, uh, an, an extraordinarily important uh, event for national economies, for public health. Uh, I, it really, the time has arrived, I think. And not only has the time arrived, but the science is approaching the level at which I think we're beginning to gain enough understanding that we think we can do this in humans. We know we can do it in other animals. Um, we think we can do this in humans. Okay, now let's get back to Earth and uh, talk about hokum, snake oil, and real science. Uh, if you visit the drugstore, you realize that there are whole shelves full of herbs and remedies and vitamins, making all sorts of promises about retarding the aging process, reversing the years. So let's now talk about the science, that is, what is known experimentally. Let's start with the Internet, where we have lots of advertisements for human growth hormone. Now, in some sense, are the people of America being used as guinea pigs for this gigantic experiment on human growth hormone, or what are your thoughts? Well, uh, actually, uh, people are using themselves as guinea pigs. It's absolutely remarkable that, uh, you know, you can go on the Internet and find every conceivable nutritional supplement and hormone, including growth hormone, uh, with people with no expertise in the field claiming that it can slow, stop, or reverse the biological process of aging. And people believe this. They spend enormous sums of money. They order this stuff over the Internet. They inject themselves with it or take these pills. And there isn't a shred of, shred of evidence that it'll make you live any longer. There actually is some evidence, some suggestive evidence, that some of these substances, including growth hormone, have the potential to actually shorten your life. Uh, so it's remarkable that people are conducting a biological experiment on themselves. It doesn't mean that there isn't value necessarily some nutritional supplements, particularly for people who are deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. Uh, there's no question that there is a benefit for those individuals. But if your diet is so bad that you're deficient in some major uh, vitamin or mineral or, uh, you know, or, or something, um, that uh, these, uh, these vitamin supplements aren't going to uh, make up the difference. It simply isn't going to work. And there's no evidence that it actually extends life. 
And what about the side effects of human growth hormones? Some people think maybe cancer or other kinds of diseases associated with accelerating metabolism. Uh, it's like a sports car. If you were to accelerate a sports car, you'd throw off a few gears here, here and there. And that, of course, means cancer because cancer, in some sense, is genetic errors. Uh, but what are your thoughts about side effects of human growth hormone? Well, um, first of all, uh, it has been demonstrated that there are some benefits, believe it or not, uh, associated with growth hormone including increased muscle mass and uh, reduction in the rate of bone loss and improved skin elasticity. So you can't deny the fact that there have been benefits associated with it. But accompanying those benefits have been uh, risks, including carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, increased risk of diabetes. There is suggestive evidence that it might increase the risk of cancer. The fact is, is that it hasn't been properly studied yet using clinical trials in humans. Uh, and so before those clinical trials are in, before we know what the results are, it's really premature to be using these kinds of substances. And again, once again, with the case of growth hormone, there isn't any evidence that it extends life. Okay. Now, moving on, when you go to the drugstore, you see these advertisements for megavitamins. Uh, some claim that it retards uh, the oxidation process. Other people cite certain studies which show that if you ingest certain diets, diets are rich in vitamins, it seems to be good for you. But what about the pure, the pure form of vitamins that you buy in the drugstore? Well, um, well, once again, um, you know the the nutritional supplement uh, industry is really working hard to convince us that aging is somehow caused by. Uh, uh, either the loss of some hormone or the lack of nutritional supplements of one kind or another, and they're perfectly willing to sell you uh, everything that that, uh, that that they can to try to convince you that you can somehow influence this process. Uh, and it's based in part on a uh, on, on on science, uh, where it's suggested that uh, that aging is influenced by oxidation, uh, and this oxidation process can be. Uh, uh, slowed down in theory with the ingestion of uh, certain nutritional supplements that have antioxidative effects. Um, but there isn't any empirical evidence that demonstrates that these substances actually extend duration of life. Uh, so once again, it's the same scenario uh, where people are selling something with exaggerated claims, uh, with a profit motive uh, in mind, and uh, people are buying it up like crazy. And what about herbs? Some people say that maybe pure vitamins that are refined by the chemical companies may not uh, simulate uh, vitamins in the natural forms. So what about taking herbal medicines? What is known or not known about herbs? Now, honestly, I don't, I don't know that much about her, uh, herbs and herbal medicines um, to comment uh, on that. But what I can tell you is, is, that, is that there's plenty of evidence that eating more fruits and vegetables and uh, can certainly in, uh, l lower your risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders. Uh, and, of course, those in the supplement is industry are suggesting that contained within those fruits and vegetables are certain substances that they can concentrate in a pill and give to you in a larger form, you know, under the assumption that more is better. Well, there is where the evidence is lacking. There, the evidence is there that eating more fruits and vegetables is good for you, the evidence is lacking that the nutritional supplements containing the vitamins that they think are causing the beneficial effect. Uh, the evidence there is lacking that that will have any significant effect. Okay, now moving on, let's talk about something that actually does work. Uh, I think 
All scientists would say unanimously that there is one and only one proven way, in the animal kingdom anyway, of actually increasing the lifespan of animals. We don't know whether it works for humans yet. But let's talk about caloric restriction. First of all, what is it? And uh, what tests have been done? Well, this, you're right. This is the uh, one intervention that's been demonstrated repeatedly to extend duration of life on a wide variety of species. Uh, it's basically reducing your caloric intake. It can, you know, vary. The percentage can vary from anywhere from 10 to 30 percent below maintenance levels. Um, so it would depend on what your current uh, height and weight is. But you know, if your normal caloric intake is uh, 2,000 calories to maintain your weight, you might be reducing it down to 15, for example, 1,500 <laughs> uh, calories. Um, and the and no one exactly knows. Uh, why it works or how it works, the underlying mechanism, but there is consistent research suggesting that it extends duration of life. Now, the question is, how does it do so? Does it extend duration of life by slowing the biological process of aging? Some people believe that to be the case. Others suggest that it actually extends duration of life by reducing the risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders, which is not the same as slowing the biological process of aging. Um, remember, if you reduce the risk of uh, heart disease, cancer, and stroke, however you do that through exercise or diet, the aging process marches on. It's uninfluenced by that. Um, but if indeed you're slowing down the biological process of aging, then everything negative associated with it is dragged to later ages. It's postponed to later ages. And that would actually be a wonderful thing if caloric restriction was the mechanism that actually uh, worked. Now, don't expect, by the way, that people are going to be living longer by reducing, dramatically reducing their caloric intake. What the scientists are looking for is the underlying mechanism to find a way to mimic that process without actually reducing your caloric intake. It should be obvious, by the way, that in the United States and elsewhere, we're doing the exact opposite. We are increasing our caloric intake. We are growing more obese at a more rapid pace um, than we ever have in the past. So this research is particularly important and is interesting for a wide variety of reasons. Okay. Now, caloric restriction works on yeast cells, uh, spiders, insects, uh, mice. And now, for the first time, we're getting the first preliminary evidence uh, from primate studies done in Bethesda, Maryland. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those experiments? Because primates, of course, are closer to us and uh, perhaps it may work on organisms as complex as us. But what are your thoughts? Well, my guess is it probably will. I mean, the work of Richard Weinrich from uh, Wisconsin and other researchers uh, at NIH and Bethesda uh, have, I think, demonstrated quite convincingly that reducing caloric intake can lower the risk of disease. Probably it will extend duration of life. We have to wait for these animals to live long enough to determine whether or not uh, that's going to be one of the consequences. But there's... There are a couple of problems here. In the, some of the earlier studies, you need to remember that the control animals that were used in the caloric restriction studies were fed ad libitum, uh, meaning they had as much food as they wanted, which is sort of like us. Uh, and so whenever you reduce your caloric intake uh, relative to eating as much as you want, what you are demonstrating is more the uh, detrimental effect of a gluttonous lifestyle rather than the longevity-enhancing effect of caloric restriction. So you have to be careful on, on how you interpret that. Now, in more recent studies, the control animals are not fed ad libitum. They are, are fed really more of a maintenance diet. Um, and you're not seeing quite the large uh, differences in 
uh, duration of life in these two populations when you do it that way. Nevertheless, you do see reductions in the risk of uh, a wide variety of diseases and disorders, and we would all be better off if we reduced our caloric intake. Whether it would work in humans at the level that we see in the, these other species, I think is highly questionable. And there's a real concern when, uh, for example, you extend the duration of life of a fruit fly or, uh, or a roundworm nematode by three, four, or five-fold. Real, it's real tempting for researchers to then multiply the human life expectancy by three, four, or five and suggest that the same effect if it occurred in humans would make us live hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, my guess is we wouldn't see anywhere near that kind of uh, magnitude, uh, increase in magnitude and duration of life in humans. But if we could, you know, live healthier longer for just, you know, an extra five or ten years, that would be huge. Okay, now I understand that the animals that have been studied uh, seem to be a little bit lethargic uh, because they have such a restricted diet. They have less cancerous tumors, uh, less incidences of diseases associated with the aging process, but they also seem to lack an interest in the sex drive. That is, all the things that uh, make uh, life worth living, joie de vivre, uh, these animals seem to be pretty lethargic. Uh, is that true? Yeah, so I understand that there is a appears to be a price uh, to pay. There appears to be uh, lower fecundity, um, less interest in uh, sex, and I think a difficult problem with controlling body temperature. Uh, these animals uh, are cold, in fact, uh, feel cold. And in fact, in the case of humans who are conducting this experiment on themselves, they're essentially reporting the same thing. Um, so there is a price, at least for now, to be paid by adopting this calorically restricted uh, diet, which is why, as I suggested earlier, re reducing your caloric intake to these kinds of levels probably isn't the way it's going to work in humans. The way it's probably going to work in humans is that scientists will try to find some sort of mimetic, something that will uh, fool the body into believing that it's cal calorically restricted to achieve the same effect uh, without actually reducing significantly reducing your caloric intake like that. And that's probably... Uh, the way it will work, and, and that's, it's extremely valuable and interesting uh, research that needs to be aggressively uh, pursued because there's such great potential there. Okay, now let's leave the animal kingdom and talk, and talk strictly about humans. Uh, in your book, you mention the fact that the uh, life expectancy for Americans at the beginning of the 20th century was not very long at all, less than 50 years of age. And yet there's been an increase uh, into the 70s uh, since then. Some people think it's sanitation. Other people think it's antibiotics and vaccines. But what are your thoughts about looking at the long-term, the long-term life expectancy of humans going back to ancient days, uh, through the Middle Ages, uh, to the turn of the century, to present-day times? Well, going back to, to ancient times, uh, there's evidence to suggest that life expectancy, for example, during the time of the uh, ancient Egyptians, was probably somewhere in the 20s. Nobody knows exactly where it was, but it's likely to have been in the 20s. Uh, we've we achieved a very small incremental increase over uh, the millennia to the beginning of the 20th, uh, uh, the beginning of the, the 19th and 20th centuries, when life expectancy rose up to about uh, between 45 and 50, uh, in the United States anyway. Um, 
And then you saw this quantum leap in life expectancy during the 20th century from uh, you know, 50 to close to 80. And that was largely attributable to dramatic reductions in early age mortality, infant, child, and maternal mortality, principally as a result of uh, sanitation, uh, public health, refrigeration, uh, foods, and so forth. It's, you know, the introduction of antibiotics uh, occurred after most of the declines in the death rate uh, occurred at younger ages and contributed relatively uh, a small amount to the rise in life expectancy in the 20th century. Now, in the latter part of the 20th century, there have been notable reductions in death rates at middle and older ages, even from heart disease, from some forms of cancer. Um, and so you, you see you know, two forces contributing during the 20th century. The early age mortality declines at the beginning, and the later age mortality declines at the end, uh, which explains, by the way, why the more recent increases in life expectancy have been smaller than the ones that occurred at the beginning of the 20th century. When you save children from dying, you add very rapidly to life expectancy. When you save middle-aged and older people from dying uh, from uh, fatal diseases, chronic fatal diseases, you add rel a relatively smaller amount. Now, it turns out that Japanese women have some of the longest life expectancies on the planet Earth. Uh, it's almost approaching 90 so we're talking about 50% uh, of Japanese women uh, essentially getting into their late 80s and into their 90s. Some people say it's diet, a fish diet that's low in fat. But uh, what are your thoughts about the demographics of different societies? Well, first of all, for, the, for Japanese women, it's just above 85. It might be approaching 86. And, mm -hmm. and you have to realize that, that um, there's a huge difference between 85 and 90. It's not the same as between 50 and 55. Uh, and the reason is fairly straight, straightforward. Um, you know, to raise life expectancy up when you're at these very high levels is extremely difficult because you're, you know, you're pushing up against uh, the basic biological process of aging itself. There's no question that subgroups of the population, such as those in Okinawa, Japan, for example, have, have much higher life expectancies. The actual force involved is, is not yet understood. Um, it's not like we can, here in the U.S., adopt the lifestyle of the Japanese. I know some people have suggested this, including some friends of mine um, who study the, the Okinawa diet, uh, suggested that you can somehow get Americans to live as long as the Okinawans by, have, by adopting this particular lifestyle. And there's no evidence to suggest that that would be the case, unless, of course, we were all Japanese here in the United States, and that isn't the case. Um, you know, there are genetic factors that are influencing uh, uh, the risk of death and, and, uh, and duration of life, and those are things that we simply cannot control, um, uh, at least not yet, anyway. Uh, but there's no question that subgroups of the population do experience greater longevity than other subgroups, and that is a fascinating area to study, by the way, because it would appear as though there are genes that exist within the human genome that influence duration of life, and they may be more highly concentrated in some subgroups relative to others. Okay, now let's talk about genes, because that's, of course, where most of the breakthroughs are being made in the last few years. Again, there's no fountain of youth. Uh, no, in, no one in the genetics area is claiming to have solved the aging process, but there's been lots of very interesting studies. Uh, first of all, there's something called progeria, a genetic disease that's been intensely studied in which children 
children die of old age. Uh, they look like plucked chickens, and they die of heart attacks as teenagers. Uh, could you elaborate on that very strange disease? Well, it appears on this progeria appears on the surface, anyway, to be a phenomenon of accelerated aging. Uh, but there's evidence to suggest it is not. There are lots of things that don't occur uh, in these uh, children that occur in the aging phenotype of, of uh, individuals who a actually do make it out to, to older ages. So I would be cautious about, uh, about thinking of progeria as accelerated uh, aging. Um, it is certainly interesting to study these individuals, and you have to realize that it's always easy to do something to yourself that will accelerate aging. I mean, you know, we've, and we do it all the time, quite frankly. And one of my, uh, the arguments that I've made for many years is, is that the only control we have over the duration of our life is to shorten it. And we exercise that control all the time when we adopt lifestyles that are, uh, you know, where we expose ourselves to the sun or we don't exercise or we smoke cigarettes or, or use drugs. These are the kinds of things that can uh, make us die at much younger ages than would otherwise be the case. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. Once again, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Jay Olshansky, author of the book, The Quest for Immortality. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Once again, for a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Join us every week when we discuss the cutting edge of science and how it impacts on society. Good day. <laughs>